Welcome to Veterans Radio Hour on VBN. The Music of War. Stay away to and here's Ranger Doug. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. This is Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 15th program. Over to you, General. Thank you, Ranger Doug. This evening is part two of Songs of Small Wars. We started the series of Music of War, and it was such a hit to our guests, veterans, veterans' family members, active serving military, that we decided to continue the parts of the, this this particular episode. And and the the wars are big wars, are like World War Two, World War One. Uh, when you get down to small wars, you're talking about Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Haiti, etc. And they're not really all wars. Some are, are conflicts. Some they call it peacekeeping or peace enforcement operations. But when you get down to it, soldiers are still in harm's way. And there's terror, there's there's fear, there's passion, there's there's death. And so because of the popularity of this particular series, we decided to continue on. And like I said, tonight we're going to cover the second part of Songs of Small Wars, which is Bosnia-Herzegovina, Haiti, and Syria. I just want to recap a few things about the series, Songs of War. If you look at the difference between World War II, Korea, Vietnam as an example, compared to Grenada, Beirut bombing, and other conflicts since then, we have been since Vietnam in continuous conflict starting with Grenada. No clear ending, if even there is an ending. Sort of like in the DMZ in Korea. It's an armistice. There is no ending unless something drastically changes. But it's continuous conflict. And many of our songs that we've shared with you over the last two episodes, and then tonight as well, these songs straddle conflicts. And maybe more of the time of the song than actually tied to that particular war or conflict in this case, smaller conflicts. There was a surge of country songs in Iraq 2, and I'm saying Iraq 2 because of Desert Storm, which many call Iraq 1. In Afghanistan, the very patriotic country songs. And they signified things like, don't mess with the USA, and tied maybe to even revenge for 9-11, and meant the support of the American people. When they get to conflicts like peacekeeping operations in Bosnia, Herzegovina, or Kosovo, I personally think of the Big Red One because I had the opportunity to command Task Force Eagle and the Big Red One was the, the anchor unit for that conflict. And I remember bringing the Bro, Bro Big Red One band down to Tuzla Air Force Base, Bosnia, Herzegovina, for several reasons. One for troop morale, and also to win the hearts and minds of the villages scattered throughout our area of operations. And it, it, it dawned on me after we did the series that bands are not only for change of commands or for visiting dignitaries, but they're actually for the troops of the unit, for morale. And like I said earlier, to win the hearts and minds of the local indigenous people in the area that you operate. There are songs that you heard on the first episode of World War II. In fact, my father brought up several songs, and he told me a story today. And I said, Dad, why did you want the, Gettys the music of Gettysburg? 
the, the movie, Gettysburg. Why did that mean so much to you? Why did you have that on, on the first uh, our first show? And he said, when I was a parachute infantry in, in Italy, I was in a 517th Airborne, and we were outside of the NZO. And they made us opcon to the 36th Division. And they had a big fight where General Clark sent the 36th across the Repito River. A bad fight. Many advised against it, actually. And the 36th Division took heavy casualties. And my father was a private first class, and his squad leader asked some of the 36 that were coming back across from the river, hey, I bet you guys from Alabama, because he was the squad leader from Alabama. And some of the troops responded, oh, we had a bunch from Alabama. They're all dead. And when my father watched the movie Gettysburg, it reminds him of that experience in World War II, that, that music, because pickets charge when they came back from the corporate trees from the high water mark and Robert E. Lee and other generals are there and he was asked about his division, he says, General, I don't have a division. So that music reminded my father of his time in World War Two in Italy when the thirty six came back and said basically the same thing. And when the best ranger competition was named after him, he started the kickoff of the event. And he said this on the first show with that Gettysburg music for the best ranger 100 Spartans that participated in that event every year. The music is not just songs. It's also, it's also music very significant to military organizations. Examples of TAPS. Examples of reveille, retreat, tattoo, or even service hymns. We want to pay a little tribute to military bands because they play a variety of songs for morale, but they also play them in different locations around the United States and overseas in respect for their particular service or armed forces itself represent the United States of America. Songs like God Bless America, America the Beautiful, You're a Grand Old Flag, The Invincible Eagle, This Land is Your Land, I Am the American Sailor, This is My Country, American Salute, Battle Hymn of the Republic, Gary Owen, just to name a few. So veterans tonight, please enjoy the second part of Songs of Small Wars. bring Ranger Doug on in a little different mode. I want to have him discuss his operation participation in in Haiti. And again, many people don't hear much about Haiti. A lot of it's totally focused on humanitarian aid, but there's more to the story than humanitarian aid. And uh, Ranger Doug, uh, 
give us a little bit of a background on yourself, not too long, and then move into uh, your description of the operation that you are involved with in Haiti. Thanks, sir. Yeah, I joined the uh, Army uh, in college. I uh, was fortunate to be in an ROTC program at a small school. Went to ranger school while I was in college, which was a good thing because by the time I did the Army, then I knew pretty much everything was going to happen. Started out in the infantry, ended up in special forces, did some time in the rangers and some other places, and then finally... Uh, I found myself serving as battalion commander, operations officer, executive officer, and deputy commander in one of the special forces groups under great leaders named Potter and Boyette. As we got ready to go to, to Haiti, and we could see it looming ahead of us, we'd actually attempted uh, in 93. And uh, we planned a mission that was going to be very deadly, uh, and it ran to the nines. I mean, we, we knew everything about the country. We had spent months preparing. I took over the planning and then had to brief the various commands. We put the plan together, and it was a combat entrance with uh, a forced entry, and, and a lot of things were going to happen that wouldn't be good in the end. And, of course, it was a, a nation very close to us from which we have a lot of citizens of our own country. And fortunately, after we made those plans, what sometimes happens is uh, someone declares a change of mission, and, Suddenly, after the visit of former President Carter, uh, General Colin Powell, and Senator Sam Nunn, the leader of the country was abdicated, and uh, we were told that we had 48 hours to turn the mission from combat to kind of a walk-on and to attempt to win over the populace, which the force under General Shelton was able to do. We were part of a task force that was part of a task force commanded by General Shelton at uh, 18th Airborne Corps. The whole force made its entry without uh, so much as uh, any any uh, violence at all, in fact. And the violence occurred later, but it was very low, and, and we damped it down quickly, and the soldiers performed magnificently. Uh, in the end, though, I would say that no country could make that type of turn and pull it off. We were there for the time we needed to be there. We left. The democracy was restored. And uh, when we ended the mission, we, we would tail it off to leaving some forces behind. We had to surge a bit to handle the flow. But, uh, it was all done pretty well in line with the plan. We just didn't do the combat part. And that meant that instead of enemies, we had more friends than we could handle. So, uh, to me, tremendous success and quite a feature in later operations when we didn't find it so friendly. Over to you, sir. Thanks, Ranger Doug. You know, you bring up an interesting point when you said no other country. Um if you look at the, the wars that we've covered, conflicts that we've been a part of, there's a spectrum of conflict, whether it be peacekeeping, peace enforcement, foreign internal defense, uh, civil affairs type missions only where you send a team into a country just to work a certain little functional area. It could be counterinsurgency. It could be limited war beyond counterinsurgency. It can be full-scale war, whatever the case may be. Maybe show a force. Our special forces teams of 12 men, a ranger company, an 82nd battalion, uh, a marine expeditionary force uh, off the shore going somewhere to do a mission or a shore force, uh, an Air Force fighter squadron, aircraft carrier, whatever the case may be, it definitely makes a difference in the world, and people take heed. They know about it. When they see it, they feel it. And they know this power behind it. And the concern today is, do we still have that status? Uh, I believe we do. It just has to be 
shown to others that may oppress people in need of military like the United States. And it, it makes a difference. And that turned could have been a nasty fight around really because of some leadership at the administration level, uh, leadership of commanding officers at the time, and boots on the ground or offshore, that this would, would happen if you did not uh, change your ways. And it did. It worked. And uh, your your thoughts on that? It's, that goes down from the, the geopolitical level all the way down to the soldier with the rifle. I, you're, you're absolutely correct. I mean, uh, soldiers follow orders, but we were the kind of flexible soldiers to take that order, which really was catastrophic. I mean, you know, you, you, you would be stuck in many countries, perhaps, and many other military forces with, well, we've got to go through with the plan because it's the plan we made. We changed that plan, and in 48 hours we executed. We had already made a plan that had us attacking the most dastardly of uh, the, the units, because if we could reduce those that were going to need to be reduced quickly, the word would go out to the others that you better submit. Well, we turned that plan around, and we ended up coming to the easiest ones, asking them to let us in, and they did, and soon we found ourselves protecting the soldiers from the populace, which we did. And, uh, again, it's I think because of... Um, I'm not saying we're better than any other country. I just think our country is unique. We have a, a force that can tailor itself to do many things, but there's flexibility, and the, and the American soldier, sailor, airman, marine, coast guardsman uh, is an entrepreneur of violence, but when it comes to something other than violence, they can, they can be an entrepreneur of good feeling, and it catches. Over to you. You know, tonight, uh, your example of Haiti, the examples of Rush and Grenada, examples of Kenny and Rick, on, on uh, Somalia, just a few of the examples tonight show the flexibility uh, of the U.S. Armed Forces, which is unbelievable, unbelievable. Uh, the ability to pivot, uh, to adjust to what they find on the ground, not what the plan was, but what uh, they find on the ground. It reminds me of the, of the saying that I'm an advocate of, when the terrain varies from the map, you got to go with the terrain. And that's a great example in the Haiti operation. Uh, I have a feeling, I'm going to ask you another question about, during that time, what what song rings in your mind? I have a feeling it may be a patriotic song, but go ahead, Ranger Doug, what song? Well, ever since I heard it, anytime I was on a mission, it was always a song by Lee Greenwood that we've become very familiar with tonight. God Bless the USA. It covers the expanse of our country. It talks about the type of people that we are. And in the end, uh, always in my mind, uh, we want to think about God blessing and has blessed the USA. And we also are very mindful of the fact that uh, with good leadership, a team can turn from a loser to a winner in a relatively short period of time. And I look that uh, that will be affected here in our country uh, within a measured period, and we'll find ourselves thinking that uh, what we've been through in this last period has been something we just will all have to learn from. It's not anyone's fault. It's a matter of confluence of the of the pandemic and a number of other forces that little control do any of us have over. And by the time we get to the other side of this, I think we're going to find ourselves in a tighter country with a better understanding of the way ahead. Thank you, sir. And it's time we stand and
Let's take a moment for a commercial break. We'll be back in a moment. We'll be right back. You're listening to Veterans Radio Hour with host General David Grange. Attention, all U.S. veterans. You have served this country with honor and pride. So why is it so difficult to receive the benefits you deserve? Filing a VA claim is complicated. It's cumbersome and time-consuming. Many veterans have a problem identifying what conditions they should apply for. VDAC, Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is an online application that greatly assists you with filling out your application and identifying the disabilities that you're entitled to. The VDAC process takes about 15 to 30 minutes from start to finish. The entire process is simple and easy to use. The software automatically cross-references the VA database to determine what presumptive conditions you are entitled to as well as any secondary conditions. Once done, a fully completed VA form is generated with supporting material. To find out more, go to nifv.org and click on the VDAC button. Again, the website is nifv.org and click on VDAC. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life, like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. Welcome back to Veterans Radio Hour. Ladies and gentlemen, we've got the uh, fine opportunity tonight to welcome two of my very good friends. Jory and Mark both have been with us before, and I would like to then ask Jory, please uh, introduce yourself. My name is Jory. I am a retired Army intelligence lieutenant colonel, and in, the, in 1998, I was part of 1st Armored Division that was deployed down into Tuzla, Maine, Multinational Division East for uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina. And I was uh, the G2 contingent, sort of the, the face for the battle update uh, briefing intent. Well, Mark, how about a little bit on yourself? Good to hear you guys again. I was um, on a small Special Forces team in uh, Bosnia in 97 and 98 and um, was living out 
outside the wire in a house out in one of the towns in the Serb sector. And uh, our job was to spend a lot of time developing relationships with the locals and then feeding ground truth, situational awareness information back up to the higher headquarters so they could make decisions about it at the strategic level. Yeah, I remember you telling me about your mission. How about uh, describing a bit more about what you did during the time that you were there, both tours? Uh, both tours, basically, we were uh, – our job as the teens at the time, we'd go out and, and uh, meet with all kinds of different local leaders, police chiefs, military leaders, refugee leaders, mayors, religious clergy, anybody that was kind of in a position of influence and uh, try and – basically get their take on the situation and what the popular sentiment was at the time and then kind of paint the rest of the picture uh, of what was going on at the ground level in, in the country back up to our headquarters at the time. And so spent a lot of time every day on the road uh, drinking coffee and other things with the locals and, and building relationships with them to, to get a free flow of information that provided that ground truth stuff up to, to the senior leaders in the military. Any particular thing, any other mission that sticks out in your mind as far as anything that you had to do that was something that caused you to reach a bit? No, I don't think so. But that, you know, those were, uh, you know, those were like my first two deployments in, in special forces. And so every day was a reach because everything was new. And, uh, of course, no one had really trained the army for Bosnia. Of course, special forces were pretty adaptable at the time and always have been. But. So, you know, it was all new to me, and it was all larger than life, and uh, I grew a lot uh, in those two trips and, and learned a lot from my team and uh, from both the teams and then from the leaders there. And certainly the locals taught, taught me quite a bit, too. That's great. And I'm sure that experience was valuable to you in, in the rest of your career. In fact, were there any things about that particular mission coming in that way that uh, helped you later on? I think the importance of understanding what's going on on the ground with the population of a, of a country or an area is thinking across a broad spectrum from, you know, like I said, religious to refugees to, to criminals to cops to military folks helps helps you come up with a decent plan so you can win. That's great. Well, thank you, Mark. I really appreciate it. Jory, how about you? Well, I did the intel side, so I'm always a little bit hesitant to, to talk about things, but that was one of the best tours I had. It was very formative. I ended up uh, serving a, another tour in the Balkans uh, two years after that as a, as a company commander, and I think, it, I think that that tour in Bosnia really set me up for Kosovo uh, two years later. And, uh, you know, the big thing that uh, you were learning different pieces about ethnic ethnicities um, and you were, you know, so you were learning about the locals, but you're also learning a lot about the multinational aspect. That was the first time I served in a multinational facet. Um, I had uh, I had to, to, to loosely, you know, establish a network without actually ever meeting most of the team leaders. and. So I felt lucky because, you know, Mark was one of those team leaders that uh, that I reached out to, and um, you know, and it it, it came to uh, it came to play in a big way, and probably one of the most uh, exciting events that that happened during my tour in '98 um, in Bosnia. And so I was very very fortunate to uh, to have established a network and and also been able to go out and see some of the ground and understand some contentious areas and what that was and that was big for me to be able to convey that you know back in a headquarters setting so 
I felt like there was a blueprint there for for the future, even though it was a uh, a peace enforcement, peacekeeping operation. Uh, and as soon as we redeployed, we had to go back into a full warfighter train up because we were told that we didn't know what we were doing. <laughs> I found that ironic because I had learned so much. That's very good. Well, I remember very well that you helped our unit quite a bit, and uh, I would be sure that that particular experience benefited you then a few years later when you found yourself in other places doing something that was more dangerous, didn't you? I absolutely did. You know, the company commander in Kosovo and having a lot of small teams, you know, that were going to, to different areas. I started thinking about all the convoy ops and procedures and, and drilling that down and all the, you know, that, that, that really started for me in Bosnia. It wasn't just understanding, you know, understanding the, the, the locals and understanding dynamics, but it was also understanding, you know, the units that you're supporting and having your guys there and doing the coordination, you know, for that. But also, you know, that that was that was a great training ground for a lot of things that happened. How many times after that did you deploy Oconus? I did. Uh, so I was company commander in Kosovo, and then uh, I kind of got um, stuck uh, becoming joint qualified, <laughs> which was a, a big thing, you know, at the time. But uh, I ended up in Afghanistan uh, as my last deployment and, uh, and was very, um, you know, that would have, I think I hit 20 years actually while I was, while I was there. So. Thank you for your service and thanks for your, for your time in, in combat. And Mark, how many times after that did you find yourself, Oconus, separate times? I, I know it was more than 10 times. Yeah. Bunch, bunch of different places, a bunch of different times over the years, but, uh, yeah, that, a lot of the stuff that, uh, I learned in the Balkans, carried with me to those other places and, and used it. And uh, I really think that that was a great great foundation for, for me professionally. Well, that's great. Well, do you have anything that you have decided to talk about together? We had a really great conversation between Rick Lamb and Kenny Thomas in the previous segment. Well, I just uh, I, I do want to ask uh, Jory, because I have no idea what, what was your song, and I don't even know what kind of music do you like, because I... I I can't figure out whether you're an 80s pop or maybe a closet country fan. So, Jory, what was your song? And tell me a little bit about it. <laughs> well, um, I, I, okay, I'm just going to back this up a little bit. Because when I listened to the first episode of the Songs of War, I, I listened to what Mrs. Grange said. And I just thought that it was so interesting how she talked about that desire um, to sing. And, you know, technology changed so much. And when we were in the Balkans in the late 90s, you had, it was all about CDs. But yet, you know, we weren't at the point where you couldn't, you know, CD players skipped. And so they weren't very portable, you know. And and uh, and so I was thinking about all this, and uh, it just kind of sparked this memory of, <laughs> of uh you know, normally you had to go out of the convoy, you had to have cruiser weapons, but when we were doing some coordination um, over in Tuzla, we could take this vehicle called a Pajero, which I've never seen one other than in the Balkans, and we used to go over to the International Police Task Force headquarters to do, you know, coordinate things. And I remember riding back from a meeting and going back to Eagle Base, and it was nighttime, and I can't tell you how many times, but I just very vividly remember uh, Frank Sinatra's New York, New York. And 
all the people in that vehicle, we would all be from different, you know, whether you're in the G2 or the G3 or, you know, your recorder, you know, we were all from, you know, different places, different ages, and what we liked in terms of genres was different. But all of a sudden there was that common song, and it was an old, you know, an older song, Frank Sinatra, New York, New York. And it was, we would just be belting that out, you know, as like top of our lungs. And we didn't really know one another that well, but it was, I mean, it was cathartic. That's so I think, uh, are, are you going to sing a little bit of it for, for the listeners tonight? Start spreading the news I'm leaving today I want to be a part of it New York, New York These vagabond shoes Are longing to stray Right through the very heart of it, New York, New York. You know, that kind of segues to really the, the question that I have for you, um, you know, in your experience, because... You know, for the most part, because of the way CD players were, you were, it was a very personal experience. Unless somebody had a jam box, you weren't, you know, you were probably just listening to a CD player with a head, with headphones and it was a rather quiet personal experience, but then you had this one. And so my, my question for you though, because I just happen to know, has to do with live music and your career and how live music has been a common thread throughout. And I know you've got you've got a little background on this already, but so my song, um, Doug and, and Jory, was uh, Sweet Home Alabama by Skinner. And, uh, you know, it's probably an overplayed song, but uh, when, I, when I was there uh, in 1998 on a team out there, we were up in the Norwegian, Danish, Swedish, sector of Bosnia, and I bumped into these Swedish guys one day, and they had a band. Their unit had a band, and they, their government had shipped them down a full setup, drums and PA and everything they needed. And uh, They were all professional musicians back in Sweden, and they'd all been activated and deployed down to Bosnia to do this peacekeeping stuff. So next thing I know, I'm in this band with a bunch of Vikings, and we're playing all these weird Swedish songs and, and Euro pop stuff, and they're like, don't you know any of these songs? And I was like, well, do you guys know Skinner? So, you know, everybody knows Skinner. So we would play Sweet Home Alabama together. And uh, their commander had this band touring around that whole sector of Bosnia, going to all these bombed-out Serb towns and putting on rock and roll concerts for all the local townspeople. And so next thing I know, about once a week, I'm rolling out with the rock bands, and we're going to – these towns and setting up in the auditorium or the soccer stadium or whatever and putting on concerts for five, six hundred people. And uh, we start playing Sweet Home Alabama every, every time. You know, the Serbs don't know the Swedish music, but they sure know Skinner. And they would sing it louder than we, than we were playing it. So that was pretty cool to find out that this southern rock band had united Americans and, and, and Scandinavians and, and Bosnians all together. But you know, if my boss at the time had known I was screwing off and doing that stuff, he'd have probably fired me. But uh, boy, that was really cool. And and isn't that the thing? Is it, it, it 
because a song that you pick isn't necessarily your favorite song, but it's it. You know, at the end of the day, that you you feel even when you look at the songs of war and you look at it through, you know, chronologically, you feel you pick ones that people know and can sing. I mean, there is something to be said for, uh, you know, for like live music or music that you can sing together. And I just, I mean, honestly, Miss Grange, she made such a great point very early in in um, in the first episode of this. That's great. Well, listen, I I have a I have a feeling that if you'd have written anything about that rock band in your in your uh, patrol order, that your boss probably would have asked other teams to start doing the same thing. Because if I remember correctly, reading some reports in that time. People were stomping on prunes and doing all kinds of wild stuff to do exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> gain, gain and maintain yeah. situational awareness and try to keep the populace off the ground. Well, that's great. Let's uh, take some time and enjoy a commercial. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985, serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. The trucking industry was born by the military during World War I and therefore became the father of the trucking industry. Being a truck driver achieved national attention in the 1960s, when songs and movies included truck driving as a part of the storyline. If you're looking for an easy job that pays well, then GTS Transportation is looking for you. GTS Transportation is a leading transportation company with a great history. We are an international company with opportunities all around the world. Apply now by going to our website, gtscarrier.com, or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again, 847-754-4667. Apply now and become a part of truck driving history. VDAC, an online application that helps veterans research and file for their VA disabilities. Empowering the veteran to take full control of your claim. Find out more by going to our website, nifv.org, and clicking on the VDAC button. Once again, our website is nifv.org, and click on VDAC. Welcome back. Here's your co-host, Ranger Doug. Your little boy ain't gonna die. Your little boy. 
Welcome back to Veterans Radio Art. Each of you gives one closing comment since we asked each other about the songs, and that was great. I appreciate the way you did that. Yeah, it's great. It was really terrific. Thank you. Perhaps all three of us should just together to start spreading the news. We have another guest tonight, Jay, who has had recent experience in the Levant in Syria and is going to tell us a little bit about some things that he's learned. Jay, would you take a moment to introduce yourself, please? Okay, I've been in the military for some time now. I joined up late 05, got my first unit, decided I wanted to be as hard hitter as I could be, so I went to Airborne, went to Sniper, and went overseas as quickly as I could. Learned a bunch of hard lessons in Iraq, and then Afghanistan uh, continuously for the past uh, about 12, 13 years, and then just finished up my last tour um, in Syria a couple of years ago. That's great. General, over to you. All right, Jay, we'd like you to go ahead and just give us a little bit of a background on your last deployment. We'd like to focus on Syria. We've covered the other wars fairly well. So talk mm -hmm. about the uh, type of group that you were with, uh, as well as you can say it, with, uh, so we don't violate any operational security measures, and uh, the morale yeah. of that kind of group, type of mission they have, and w what you were doing over there. I was with the Special Forces Detachment while I was there. Um, the main focus that we had was support of SDF and the local forces fighting uh, what was the remnants of ISIL and trying to um, shift the tide as much as we could towards not only coalition, but the side that we wanted to win, essentially. So that was the majority of what we were doing. It was kind of an advisory, but also trying to augment as much as possible the fighting forces that were on the ground there. I know you're a hell of a sniper. Did you employ your sniper capabilities, or did you have to take on other roles because of the mission set? Uh, the sniper was a, an added asset. We actually had two other cats on my uh, team that were um, amazing snipers, better than me um, on any given day. I'm a the world's okayest sniper, and they are <laughs> far beyond my skill. I kind of humbled myself as much as I could and tried to learn as much um, from those guys. It, it came in to effect... To a certain extent, we had some issues with um, like counter sniper, and then with um, some of the um, remote vehicles that they had utilized, like drones and what have you, um, trying to pinpoint where those were coming from. That was a an added issue in that kind of environment. Um, but the majority of what we were doing was uh, honestly handing things off to the JTAC as much as possible, so that we could be as far away or stay in the fight as long as possible. Your feelings on attachment, knowing the organization fairly well, just like Sergeant Major Lamb, do you feel on uh, you know how medic is uh, 18 Delta is such a force multiplier with an attachment overseas, especially dealing with a ton of indigenous forces as well as the uncertainty of that kind of a fight like you have in Syria uh, with uh, friend and foe, different factions, uh, different types of uh, rudimentary weaponry and also advanced technology at the same time. How would you how would you qualify the sniper uh, as a combat multiplier in that environment? To flip the same side of the coin, or flip the other side of the coin of that, like it does as with any environment that you have overseas, a sniper. I mean, if you go from Bosnia Herzegovina all the way through, you know, since we've actively employed snipers for the U.S. military effectively in terms of, like, my recent or its recent history. Um, snipers are always a force multiplier because one guy can hold down an entire company to, depending on its effectiveness, even a larger-scale force. Um, it 
has its advantages being such a low profile and taking things back to the basics now, like they were saying, like if you're good at, you know, pen and paper, if I have all my dope, I don't need a piece of electronics that can be tracked. And like, good luck finding me if I'm hidden well. So I think that in and of itself is a, a huge force multiplier for such a small footprint and a small element on the battlefield to be able to turn the tide or to be able to hold down or pin down an isolated unit to maybe fix and finish them with a larger uh, weapon system or uh, force and maneuver. Yeah, I, I personally, uh, Jay, I personally really admire the the use and ability of snipers, friend and foe. Uh, I've seen them hold down a whole company. You're absolutely right. And if, a, and if a unit doesn't have a sniping capability, then they have to rely, because of the distance factor, they have to rely yeah. on indirect fire short mortars or they have to call an Apache so they have to do airstrikes or whatever else. So the sniper, counter-sniper fight uh, is is really key, especially, I think, through history in warfare. But it, it's so unique and such a force multiplier that units that don't employ them, that military organizations that don't recognize that and put it in their table of organization with the right equipment is craziness. Uh, I remember in the Big Red One, we had sniper rifles assigned to battalions, but no snipers on the force list for personnel. That did make yeah. sense. And and it's just it's such a combat multiplier. Uh, there's a couple of things I personally am afraid of in the battlefield. That's snipers, that's mortars, that's RPGs, and IEDs. Those four things to me are terrifying, force multiplier, and stop heavy light, and special operations units in their tracks. Now, if you can't counter that, or you don't have that capability yourself to inflict fear into the hearts of the enemy. So Absolutely. I appreciate your rundown. Yeah, yeah, and I and yeah, thank you. And I appreciate your your dedication to that skill, as well as the other skills. That's what those listeners on the on the show tonight. The, the combat multiplier that one 12-man Special Forces Detachment brings to the fight is extraordinary. Uh, the ability of one senior trained people. They, came from, they come from the ranks uh, of seed corn in the Army to fill those positions. And then other services have equivalents. I want to make sure people understand that in the, in the other, other services. And, uh, and thanks for representing that, Jay, uh, the sniper on the battlefield. And the thing about the reason we wanted to talk about Syria tonight a little bit is because not many people know about it. Uh, presidents have made comments that lined in the sand. Uh, troops get deployed there back and forth, and, and no one really hears much about it. And it's a key place in that part of the, of the world, not only uh, with, with certain people that are oppressed, the indigenous, but also geopolitically. Over to you, Ranger Doug. Roger. Thank you, General. Well, Jay, how about uh, in your time deployed, was there a, a song of uh, particular importance to you, your team, your unit, something that, that motivated you or held it together or just something you would use to relax uh, as you as you would terminate a mission? Over to you. Yeah. Um, so I had uh, listened to the previous podcast and actually I talked to uh, Matt about his experience in Afghanistan him and I sharing um, some time uh, over there at the same 
time period, not the same place. We had uh, completely different mission sets, but we had a conversation about like the music that he listened to in his team room, um, the Rangers would use to get ready or what they were doing. And I actually had a conversation with a couple of my buddies today. I was kind of racking my brain thinking about, you know, what what was it that necessarily defined the time period that I was over there. And looking back on deployments, like any time you spend overseas, there's, you know, 10% of it's a, a hellacious time period. And then the other 90% or however you want to break it up for you, for your own individual experience. But during the the time that I actually have over there that I think of more often than not were like really good times that I spent like just sitting across my buddy shooting the shit or whatever we were talking about or you know our dark sense of humor is kicking in or something have you and the, the song that actually played most in my head today was um, a song by Dirty Heads called Vacation um, it's not it's not typical of what you would think for um, like hyping you up or trying to get in the mindset of like going outside of the wire, going out and you know kicking indoors or whatever have you. It's a really laid back song from a, a band out in California. Um, and the main thought process is, is that like you spend your life doing what you want and with the people that you want, and it's like you never really have to work. You're never on the clock essentially. You're always on vacation, always enjoying your time. Um, and like I said, the few guys that I was with this last time, um, two of my absolute best friends, I've known one for almost 12 years now, I've known one for about eight and a half, and I I talk to them <laughs> every day. I talk to them several hours a day, so I think that's kind of what defines my time over there for me. Hey, I'm on vacation every single day Cause I love my occupation Hey, I'm on vacation If you don't like your life, then you should go and change it Hey, I'm on vacation every single day Cause I love my occupation Hey, I'm on vacation every single day Every, every single day Well, that's great, Jay. Thank you very much. And thank you for appearing with us tonight. We really appreciate it. That wraps up our third program in the series Music of War, this one being Songs of the Wars Part 2. We plan other music programs to follow, possibly not next week, because other things are developing. But listen again for more music of, of war, music of peace, music of operations. I want to thank our participants tonight, and we'll join you again next week for another of Veterans Radio Hour 2.0. This is our 15th program. Ranger Dug Out. Thank you for listening to Veterans Radio Hour. Veterans Broadcast Network, bringing you shows like Veterans Radio Hour, Wounded But Not Broken, and Roll Call. No one left behind.
If you are one of the 20 million veterans who served in the United States military, then this message is for you. During your time in the service, you might have experienced conditions and mishaps that have or will have an impact on your health and quality of life. Sometimes it takes years for these conditions to manifest themselves. Most veterans ignore the early warning signs and therefore miss opportunities that could have improved their health or extended their life. It is important that you identify underlying conditions early while you have a chance to make a difference. The VDAC software was created to help you identify presumptive service-connected conditions as well as assist you with filling out any of your VA disability forms. Not every veteran wants to file a claim. However, knowing what health issues to be aware of is an added benefit of living a long, healthy life. For those who want to file for their VA disability, the VDAC application greatly simplifies and expedites this process and therefore produces a perfectly filled out VA disability form with supporting material. For more information, go to nifv.org. Again, that's nifv.org. The goal of VDAC, the Veterans Disability Application Caddy, is to empower you, the veteran, with a quick and easy tool that aids you with filling out your VA disability forms. My father was the, the best truck driver I've ever known in my life. Like a family tradition. I'm a truck driver myself. I drove around the states with my cat. To be the truck driver, you not just only see where you go, you see the world in the larger perspective. This is a really good time to be in the trucking industry. The dispatchers get good loads for them. The equipment is very new and then it's very reliable. At GTS Transportation, we make dreams come true by employing truck drivers, dispatchers, mechanics, and many other occupations. Consider joining our rapidly expanding team where we put quality, human dignity, and respect back into the workforce. Contact us by visiting our website at gtscarrier.com or call us at 847-754-4667. That number again. 847-754-4667. Dallas Corporation and Dallas Logistics, a proud supporter of the Veterans Broadcast Network for over 19 years. High-quality printing services and warehouse distribution has been our hallmark since 1985. Serving Fortune 100 companies for over 35 years. Check us out at www.dallascorp.com. 